This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, A Mystic's View of Science, recorded May 25th, 2014, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning, I'm going to talk about how mystics view science. And this was sparked by a question left in the question box from Peter Ganter. So let me begin by reading Peter's question. Is science a manifestation of God? God's dance to be known. That last phrase, God's dance to be known, is in quotes, and I believe he's uh, quoting me from a couple of Sundays ago when I was in the middle of a discussion, I was talking about why the cosmos is here, and one of the great images of this is comes from the Hindu tradition, and this cosmos is the dance of Shiva. And so the whole cosmos, everything we experience is all the dance of Shiva, and Shiva's dancing this cosmos in order that Shiva can get to know form, because Shiva is formless, but there's this wonderful dance of form, and that's how Shiva gets to know Shiva, gets to know Shiva's potential for creativity, we might say. So that's what he's referring to there. So, is science a manifestation of God, God's dance to be known? Can we understand God in scientific terms? Wouldn't this devalue the nature of God? Good question. Dave also had asked me a question about science uh, and gave me a book to read earlier, so this may be helpful to answer your question as well. So if we're going to talk about this, first of all, uh, we have to come up with a definition of what science is or an understanding of what science is. Now, I'm going to give you here in this talk a just a wild, broad, brushstroke sketch This is something that Tom and I have been working on literally for years. This has to do with the second part of the center's mission. The first part is to help people on their spiritual path, and the second part is to help foster a new worldview in which we can understand science and mysticism as uh, different manifestations or different ways of describing the same underlying reality. So what we're doing and what this talk is about relates to the second part of our mission. In case any of you are wondering, why is he talking about that? So, we need to understand then how science can be a way that God is known, and we need to understand how science fits into a mystical view of the cosmos, a mystical cosmology, we might say. Now, the truth of the matter is, there is no such thing as a mystical cosmology, because the mystics all give their teachings in terms of the cosmologies of their traditions and their cultures. So the Buddhists uh, talk about uh, their teachings in terms of their cosmos, which involves uh, karma and transmigration and things like that. And the Christians talk about it in their cosmos, which involves uh, ultimately heaven and hell and and those sorts of ideas, quite different ideas, different cosmoses they live in. But if we look at the mystics of these traditions, there is no one single mystical cosmology. But if we look at the teachings of the mystics of these traditions, not not all the believers, but the mystics, we find that there are core teachings there that are have tremendous intersubjective agreement. And if we abstract them out and look at them, we start to see what a mystical cosmology might look like. 
And if we're at the center here, then we try to put that in some more generic terminology so it's not uh, strictly Buddhist or strictly Christian or Muslim or something like that. So let's look at the mystical teachings about uh, the cosmos, how it came about and how it got configured. Here's the Tao Te Ching, the founding text of Taoism. The myriad creatures in the world are born from something and something from nothing. Myriad creatures here is an idiom. It doesn't just mean little butterflies and rabbits and things. It means all phenomena, all manifest phenomena. The 10,000 things sometimes you'll read it as, uh, translated as. So, the myriad creatures in the world are born from something and something from nothing. So there's this fundamental relationship between a something and a nothing. Listen to the Buddhist Prajnaparamita Sutra. Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Form is not other than emptiness. Something, nothing, form and emptiness. And here's the Hindu Lali Shori. She was a great mystic of the 14th century. The world of differences is called Kula and can be known through speech and mind. The undifferentiated state beyond this is known as akula. The teaching which unites these two and gives the vision of oneness is the highest teaching. Isn't that form is emptiness? Emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness. She's talking about what's differentiated and what's undifferentiated, right? Now, so these are three Eastern traditions. Maybe something about being in the East that, you know, people have that slant on things. But let's listen to the great Kabbalist scholar, Gershom Sholem, the Kabbalists are the mystics of Judaism. The primary start or wrench in which the introspective God is externalized and the light that shines inwardly is made visible, this revolution of perspective transforms Einsof, the inexpressible fullness, into nothingness. It is this mystical nothingness from which all other stages of God's gradual unfolding emanate. Einsoft is another, it's a Kabbalist word for the ultimate reality, even beyond God in a certain sense, and it just means without limit. Einsoft, no limits, no boundary, no end. So here we have uh, uh, this fullness that becomes this nothingness, and out of that all the myriad creatures emanate. Same teaching here. And here's uh, the Christian mystic Dionysus the Aeropagite. And he doesn't use the name of God in this. He calls the ultimate reality the ultimate nameless. The ultimate nameless is within our intellects, souls, and bodies, in heaven, on earth. And whilst remaining the same in itself, it is at once in, around, and above the world. Super celestial, super essential. A sun, a star, fire, water, spirit, dew, cloud, stone, rock, and all that is. Yet it is nothing. Something and nothing. The myriad creatures are all come from nothing. My God, is this a Buddhist? No, it's not. He's a Christian mystic. So notice this tremendous intersubjective agreement here. This is why uh, one of the most important things that we at the center want to educate people about. These people from totally different religions, totally different traditions, times, places, cultures, different languages, 
And yet the, the core teachings at that level, they're the same, fundamentally the same. So technically, the scholars who study these things try to translate this into more generic terms. This is a description of God as being both manifest and unmanifest. Or another way to put it is God is eminent in all things, but also transcends all things. So there are these two aspects of God, the transcendent, the imminent, the manifest, the unmanifest, the something, the nothing. And you'll find this, as I say, in all the mystics of all these traditions. So how does this apparent duality between the manifest and the unmanifest, the form and the formless, how does that appear? What makes that happen, so to speak? Well, here's the uh, Sufi poet Rumi. Sufis are the mystics of Islam. Form was born from speech and then died. It took its wave back to the sea. Form comes out from formlessness. Then it returns. For unto him we are all returning. That last line, unto him we are all returning, is a line from the Quran. So he's giving you a kind of interpretation of what this means from a mystical point of view. Form was born from speech and then died. Somehow form is a product of speech. It took its wave back to the sea. There's this analogy of form when we speak, when we uh, manifest things like a wave in the ocean, manifest something, and then we fall silent and they die away and go back to silence, go back to the sea, the formless. Form comes out from formlessness, just like the myriad creatures, right? Form comes out from formlessness. Then it returns, for unto him we are all returning. So all the myriad creatures come out from nothing and return to nothing. Same idea here. But he's introduced this role of speech, very important. And when he says speech, and a lot of mystics talk in terms of speech, they mean also beyond just verbal speech, thought, and even deeper than that, the power of imagination, we might say. The power to distinguish, to create distinctions. And we have this this power of creating distinctions, and we superimpose it on the formless. So the formless is always there, so to speak, and then we superimpose a distinction on it. And the first distinction in all these traditions is experienced as the distinction between subject and object, self and world, I and other. And I'm going to illustrate how this works for you right here and now. I want you to Imagine, close your eyes, and visualize a circle. Make your mind blank, nothing else in there, and just visualize a nice, clear circle. It could be a circle of light, any kind of circle you want, but a circle. Now focus on that circle. Now notice that the circle is something, and it stands in a space of no thing. Something, nothing. It's superimposed on the nothing. But inherent in this arrangement is the awareness, the consciousness that knows it's there. You, the subject. The circle is the object that's known, and you are 
the subject that knows. Open your eyes. Everybody got that? So when we have the manifestation of a distinction, some form in formlessness, we also automatically have the awareness of that. That's unstated, that itself is formless. That can never become an object before consciousness. This is why you can never know yourself or think you know yourself who you are as some object. If you ever think, oh, now I know who I am, who's the knower of that? That bit of datum that you have. Turn the attention always backward. So the simple, one simple distinction gives us form from formlessness. And then, as I've often said, this is the process just repeats itself through speech and thought and imagination. So I call this gong. I make a distinction, a boundary that separates this from everything that is not gong. I call this clock. Again, I'm making a distinction. I'm distinguishing it from everything that is not clock. I'm creating this multiplicity through the power of speech or the power of thinking about it, the power of projecting these distinctions onto what is fundamentally, from mystic's point of view, a non-dual reality. Duality is popping up all over the place here. Everybody following me here? Now, you'll find the same teaching about speech, again, in all the mystical traditions. Here's the Christian Gospel of John. This will be familiar to you if you grew up Christian, I think. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What creates the world in the Christian tradition? The word, speech, naming, distinction. The Greek is logos there, and it has more than just verbal speech. It has the whole idea of reason, making distinctions of uh, where logic comes from, making arguments. So right fundamentally in there, there's this, in the Christian tradition, there's this same teaching about the role of speech, of word, of distinction. Here's Gershom Sholem again. All creation is from the point of view of God nothing but an expression of his hidden self that begins and ends by giving itself a name, the holy name of God, the perpetual act of creation. All that lives is an expression of God's language. Isn't this the same teaching? Here's the Tao Te Ching again. The nameless was the beginning of heaven and earth. The named was the mother of the myriad creatures. These two things are the same, but diverge in name as they issue forth. So it's a common image that, that Rumi used is the image of waves on the ocean. The waves emerge from the ocean. They're the same. They're all water. There's no true distinction between them. You go out there in a rowboat, you can't really point to, oh, this is the boundary where one ends and the other begins. And yet we name them. My favorite example of this, it comes from Gene, who was a surfer. Surfers know you have all kinds of names for different kinds of waves, choppy waves and curling waves, and you know, because they need to know whether it's worth you know, swimming out there to ride the wave or not. So they can hang 10, right? 
So it's the same thing here. They're, this is why the Tao Te Ching says they're the same, but they issue forth, and naming is what separates them. Naming is what gives them that appearance of being a separate object. Here's the great Hindu mystic Shankara. And he talks about the formless Brahman. Brahman is the ultimate reality in Hinduism. The universe, which is superposed upon Brahman, is nothing but a name. Again, again, again. These people never read each other or talk to each other, you know. Their co-religious would kill each other. So, again, we can see this so simply. Well, often we try to understand these teachings by complicating them, by thinking that, well, there must be more to it and our thoughts spin, but actually we should go the other direction to understand them. So I want you to close your eyes again and visualize that circle that form standing in the formless space. And that one form, that one distinction, that is a name. That's just what Shankar is talking about. You superimpose a name on the space. And guess what that is a name of? What could it be a name of? At the most primitive level, there's nothing else there, so it's the name of the space, isn't it? Something is the name of nothing, and you can't have something without the nothing. Are we getting this? This, this, is, this is why mystics say, underneath all this, and this is why we spend so much time trying to get our minds to slow down and maybe pause for a moment, because our minds are constantly creating this cosmos. So maybe we can see what is underneath there, what all this is naming, what all this is the name of. Why it's the speech of God, as the Kabbalists say. Here's what uh, the Buddhist uh, Nagarjuna says. Whatever is in the three realms, all that is the construction of mind. How is it so? It is in accordance with one's thought that one realizes all things. How we think about things is how we experience them. Now notice again this tremendous intersubjective agreement about these things. The relationship of something to nothing and, and the construction of the cosmos and the, the role of thought, of speech, of imagination in bringing this about. Very important. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, the modern discipline of anthropology verifies this, actually. Anthropology, modern anthropology, is about a little over 100 years old. And in this 100 years or so, the anthropologists have gone out to all these different indigenous people and, and studied them and learned their languages and uh, tried to understand the worlds they live in and so forth. And what they come back and report, and you can read pages and pages of, and it's fascinating to me anyway, is how different the worlds are that these people who are from different cultures, speak different languages, uh, are from ours. And things we just take for granted, <laughs> they don't take for granted at all, and things that we think are foolish are, are realities to them. So one of my favorite stories is a story uh, told by this <coughs> Norwegian explorer, um, Rasmussen, Nud Rasmussen. This is the turn of the early part of the 20th century. And he was, uh, did a lot of exploring around the Arctic region and 
Greenland and the Eskimos. He got to know the Eskimos very well, spoke their language and so forth. And he tells the story about an Eskimo shaman. And the way the Eskimo shaman became a shaman was he was out in his kayak one day fishing and uh, this shark swam up alongside him. And the shark called his name. Are you? Are you? And he was astonished. But the reason he was astonished, not that the shark called his name. The reason he was astonished, the sharks didn't usually swim in that kind of water. It was too far north. He didn't see sharks, many sharks in that water. That sharks, animals will you know, speak to humans all the time in his culture, bears, polar bears and things. So it wasn't that an animal was communicating with a human. And then the shark king started helping him out with his fishing and accompanying him on fishing expeditions. And this was the first spirit helper he got through this shark. Now, you know, this is bizarre to us, isn't it? Supposing you were out and mowing your lawn and your neighbor came over and said to you, yeah, have you been listening to these squirrels? <laughs> I mean, they want me to buy Coca-Cola, but, you know, they're giving me advice on the stock market. You would, you would, you would recommend they might need a little help, right? Send them to Rich. <laughs> But no, in, in that culture, do you understand what a different world it would be to live in where actually you spoke to animals and they gave you advice and what kind of totally different experience the world would be? Here's a story a little closer to home. Oh, those of you who know Andrea, Andrea used to live down in Southern California and she's been studying Tibetan Buddhism for years and knows a lot of Tibetan lamas and hangs out with them and has been around at least in the California and the West, various kinds of retreats and so forth. And she was with a Tibetan Lama in Santa Barbara. He was staying at someone's house, and she was there to help out. And they went walking down on the beach. This is a Tibetan Lama from Tibet. I mean, this is a guy who was born and raised in Tibet. And they went walking on the beach, kind of a rocky beach, and they're walking along, and they're talking about things. And suddenly, the Lama says, Oh, oh, and he, he reaches down, he picks up these stones, and he's got his robes, you know, his orange robes, and he's loading up his orange robes with these stones. And she said, what's the matter? He says, these stones don't want to be here. <laughs> these stones don't want to be here, okay. She helped him load up some stones, they got enough, and they took them someplace else. But, you know, this is, again, an example of how when you're dealing with people from a different culture, suddenly everything seems kind of normal, and then, boom, something happens, and you realize, whoa, 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 it's a different experience here. So all these different worlds, not just the world that you and I inhabit here in America in the early part of the 21st century, but all over the world there are these different worlds, and you must have run into people who have quite different worldviews than you, and you wonder how they could believe this stuff. I don't know, fundamentalist Christians or, or fundamentalists from any tradition for that matter. And there are a lot of things that you just don't experience the world that way. And it comes from, because each person and their culture, their collective, their community, divides the world up differently and then relates to the world that way. So each of these worlds... And that's, by the way, relates to worldview. A worldview is a worldview of a particular, the view of the world of a particular people. And even down to a particular person. You know, each of us, our views of the world don't exactly match our neighbors. There are little slight differences. So it's not, uh, you know, it's a flexible uh, expression here talking about worldview. But this is what worldviews mean. And each of these worlds 
that manifests in relation to the worldviews of these communities, each one is a way God is known. And at that level, they're all equal. One's not more superior than another. At that level, it's true. We are all human beings. We are all equal. And if you are uh, an Indian living in the Amazon, and you live in a totally different world, I've read some of that, and I wouldn't even try to even start to explain it. I don't really understand it, except that it's at a very, very shallow level. But really different worlds, believe me, than we do, that we would say, this is nuts. But that's a way God is known. Now, we all have to, in this uh, shrinking world, we all have to interact together. And so we are going to make judgments about how people do things in this culture and that culture. And we're going to have to try to work that out if we as a species are going to survive. So it's not like we shouldn't make any judgments about how, how people do things in that culture. There's still places in India where the custom of burning wives when their husbands die lingers. I don't think that's a really very good custom. I don't mind, you know, making that kind of judgment. I don't think it's written in in, uh, some sort of concrete somewhere that this is, you know, the Ten Commandments, you can't do this. But I'm certainly willing to engage in a discussion with somebody and, you know, let's try to have a cross-cultural discussion with respect and so forth. In any case, I don't want to get off on that, but I just want to point out that at that level, these are all ways God is known. Now, interesting. We've been talking about one kind of language. We might call it natural language. Languages that arose organically out of the experience of our various peoples you know, over historical periods of time. But humans have actually developed two different kinds of language. There are many different natural languages. You know, there's uh, Japanese, there's French, there's Spanish, there's Swahili, etc., etc. But there's also another kind of language we're going to talk about in a minute. There's something about natural languages, though, that they all have pretty much in common. They rely heavily on qualitative distinctions. Distinctions between hard and soft, pain and pleasure, good and bad, light and dark. Not so much quantitative distinctions. And then human beings more recently have started developing another language that makes quantitative distinctions. We call it mathematics. And it's interesting because this is, you know, historical development. We didn't, we weren't just all born with mathematics. In fact, many indigenous languages only have two or three counting words. One, two, many. Or one, two, three, many. Henry. Henry. (laughs) Yes, that's what he has. (laughs) Well, children, that's right. They start learning with just like that. The earliest mathematical artifact, the earliest piece of something that we have that indicates somebody was doing mathematics actually uh, is called the, I'm probably mispronouncing this, Labumbo bone. It's uh, got 29 notches on it, and it was dates about 35,000 years ago. It's actually from uh, the Swiss Alps, so I don't know, Labumbo sounds like it's uh, a Latin American dance of some sort, but... <laughs> Maybe it's the name of a town in the Swiss Alps, I don't know. Anyway, very briefly, modern mathematics, that is the relating of quantities through formulas, began in Babylon and Egypt and China and India and developed slowly and developed mostly for 
uh, commercial and religious reasons, commercial reasons for facilitating trade and religious reasons, primarily in astronomy, for uh, being able to track the times, the seasons, when certain important religious festivals needed to be held, the harvest festival, the planting festival, and things like that. So that's basically how it got started, very practical ways. But then, somewhere around the 6th century, in Greece, they started creating abstract mathematical systems of arithmetic and geometry that weren't related to any particular trade or or necessarily to astronomy or or whatever. These were just studies of how quantities relate to each other. And so this was the beginning of what we now think of as modern mathematics. Another very important thing here, and one that's usually overlooked in presentations of history of mathematics or the history of science, is sort of just taken for granted, but it's extremely important, is that along with math, the ancients developed units of measurement. Units of measurement. Feet, miles, minutes, hours, all these units. And, and they, again, came out of practical stuff in terms of uh, using uh, you know, trade and coinage and money and things like that. But this allowed them to superimpose quantitative distinctions onto the qualitative distinctions already made by our natural languages, right? So now we still have the, we haven't gotten rid of the qualitative distinctions. We still, you know, can identify a forest and uh, a river and, you know, but now I can start to talk about how far is it from here to the mountain, and I don't care what the quality of the land is. I might be traversing a desert and then I go into a forest and I have to cross a river, but it's 100 miles, so I can ignore the quality of what I'm dealing with, and I'm just concentrating on the quantity. There's a very good example of this. I can give you a very simple example we can all do together. Let's say it's so about 100 before the Common Era, 100 BC, and I am a merchant. And I've come to Rome, and I've, I've got a buyer in a little town called Terranium that's 15 miles outside of Rome but I don't really know the area well and so forth, so I'm staying in a friend's house, and I got a horse, and I know the horse can go five miles an hour. So my friend tells me, well, it's 15 miles to Terranium, so then I can figure out, well, let's see, if I leave at 10 o'clock, when am I going to arrive at Terranium? One o'clock, right, one o'clock in the afternoon, leave at 10 o'clock in the morning. And this is valuable because I don't have to pack a lunch. And I say, oh, I'll have lunch in Terranium, you know. Uh, I, I hear they got good goats in there. So. But look what happens. I can predict something that I did not know before just by calculating. I don't have to go and then see how long it took me. I know how long it's going to take me. I know what's going to happen if all goes well. In three hours, I'm going to be in Terranium. We take this for granted. A simple little formula. I wrote it as D divided by S equals T. Distance divided by speed equals the time. And then, of course, I could flip all those around and plug in two of them and get a third one. We take it so much for granted, but look at the power of this to sit there and, and calculate and figure out the future. It's astonishing, really. <clears throat> now, I want you to notice something about this. These units we talked about, 
miles, which are units of distance or space, and hours, the horse goes five miles per hour, uh, units of time. These units are imaginary distinctions superimposed on the world. They are imaginary. You cannot find any hours there, and you cannot find any miles. You get this? They're arbitrary. We made them up. So I make up these distinctions, these imaginary distinctions, and I superimpose them on the world, and then I can manipulate everything, and I can still predict the power of imagination. You see it right there. We saw the power of imagination just in naming things, how it creates different worlds and so forth, but now the power of imagination and how it creates quantitative distinctions is astonishing. So... The combination of inventing mathematics and units of measurements is the beginning of science. We start saying, what is science? There it is. It's already starting. I'm going to give you a working definition of science from a mystic's point of view. I say a working definition because you can't hold me to this a year from now exactly. Tom and I might go off and have some lunch and come back with some tweaking and adjustments. But here's a good working definition, okay? Science is using math to calculate relationships between two or more known measurable quantities which yields an as yet known unknown measurable quantity. So it might be actually whole sets of measured quantities. They have to be measurable quantities, by the way, because in order to do science, I have to be able to go measure both sides of the equation. Otherwise, it's not science. So... If you are interested in what a mystic's definition of science, at least that would be one right there. Now, then we just have to talk briefly about then how did science progress from, from my being a merchant back there in Rome trying to get the terranium in 100 BC uh, to science today. So it progressed on two fronts. The first front is the development of more and more sophisticated forms of mathematics, formulas, ways of manipulating these quantities. And let me give you just three very quick examples of how this worked and how important it was to the advance of science. The Greeks in the Hellenic period developed a very powerful, sophisticated astronomy. It was still a geocentric astronomy, but it was really magnificent given what they had to work with. In order to do that, though, they had to develop trigonometry. They had geometry before them, but now they had to develop trigonometry, which is the study of angles and sides of triangles, because all the, the heavenly bodies are, are you know, positioned and related through measuring through these angles and triangles and stuff. So you needed trigonometry to get to advanced astronomy. You can't get to advanced astronomy without trigonometry. Then classical mechanics developed in the 17th century by Newton primarily. In order to do classical mechanics, you need calculus. They had no calculus before Newton. There's just some uh, you know, hints of it that people just sort of got a glimmer of this idea. And I can't really do calculus, certainly. I can't really explain to you, except it's, it's a study of motion, and it divides up motion into infinitesimal little sections so you can put them all together and arrive at answers. It's all distinctions. We're making very, 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 very fine distinctions. And you can study motion. You can not just study going from Rome to Perugia on a horse, but you can study motion with increasing and decreasing velocities and all kinds of things. And that's how we get men on the moon. 
We couldn't put men on the moon without calculus. And there's a whole other areas that open up with calculus that classical mechanics and modern science would have been impossible without this development. Had to come first, see? This is what I'm trying to say. And then the last example is, this is kind of a really interesting one, by the beginning of the 19th century, there were people, mathematicians, who were doing just pure mathematics without any idea of it relating to any units of measurement or, or, quote, reality or whatever, just for the fun of it. And they looked at Euclidean geometry, and it's based on five axioms, and there's one axiom in there that looks kind of funny. It looks like you should be able to prove it or, you know, what's it doing there? So they said, well, let's develop a geometry without that axiom. And they dropped it, and they started playing with, you know, their geometric formulas and all that, the way they like to do those mathematicians. Mm -hmm. And in their ivory towers, nothing to do with anything, measuring anything. And they came up with these weird non-Euclidean geometries that have to do with curved space and things like that. A hundred years goes by, and Einstein comes up with the theory of relativity. And guess what? This non-Euclidean geometry, which was totally imaginary, guess what it describes? Space and the theory of relativity. And you can't have the theory of relativity without non-Euclidean geometry. So here's the way science progressed through the development of mathematics, inseparable from the development of mathematics. But there's one other, again, piece to this front, which is overlooked, and that is the metric mapping of the world. The increasing precision of these quantitative distinctions, units of measurement superimposed upon the world. And let me try to give you a visual example of how this works. First of all, let's talk about space. In the second century of the Common Era, Ptolemy, a great astronomer, uh, also did geography. He's known mostly for his astronomy, but he was a geographer, and he created maps of the known world, which is the Mediterranean and North Africa and into the Middle East and so forth. And he put lines across, called, he called them climes, and they distinguished where the weather changed. So if you went farther north and you crossed this climb, you know it's going to be colder up there, so you better take fur coats and all that. And if you go south and you go across this climb, it's going to be warmer. We get our word climate from climes, right? But again, these were imaginary lines just drawn across the map like that. Well, I'm sure all of you today have seen the globes and maps of the world, and they have longitude and latitude, right? Again, look, they're all imaginary, right? We're mapping we're, with the grids. We're carving up the world and mapping it. Now, you, you know, you can be very precise sailing around the world uh, with a sextant and all that and, and figuring out your longitude and latitude and, you know, know exactly where you are and all that. Well, guess what? In our lifetime, GPS, anybody heard of GPS? <laughs> we've, we've taken this map of the world. We started with climbs, then we had longitude, latitude. Now, a square meter is mapped. Where you're sitting right now, each of you is mapped someplace. No, really. Or it can be. It's potentially mapped. I should probably put it that way. So if you have a little GPS reader, you click it on, if we can get the signals, it calculates all the stuff, and it'll tell you exactly where you are within a meter or two of where you are. Incredible. You see what I mean by metrically mapping the world? Now, this is just, this is just mapping space. How about time? Time is really fun because... Time, what is time? And at the beginning, you know, the notion of time came from the fact the sun 
returns more or less to the same spot on the horizon in a given period of time. That is the definition of early primitive time. And then the moon has certain cycles like that and so forth. But very quickly, people wanted to divide up the time of, let's say, the day more precisely. So they started using imaginary units. Sundials, you, you know, you stick a, a gnome on a dial, and then you, you know, mark off the dial. These are imaginary units. And then water clocks, and then mechanical clocks. And then we have hours, and then we have divided into minutes, and divided into seconds. What are metrically mapping time? Today we have atomic clocks. And what they measure is, correct me if I'm wrong here, the frequency of what, electrons jumping around in the atom, in the cesium atom? You can measure a picosecond. A picosecond is one trillionth of a second. <laughs> What's the matter? I never even heard of a picosecond. Well, of course you haven't. I didn't either until I looked it up on Wikipedia. I was trying to look up nanosecond, nanosecond. I forget nanoseconds. We got picoseconds. But you see what I'm getting at if we look at the history of measurement. And then there are other, you know, volume all kinds of uh, electricity, radiation, all this stuff, they all have their own measured units. And they've gotten more and more sophisticated. So today, virtually, the whole known universe, you know, if you were a scientist, has grids upon grids of various units of measurement superimposed on it. So we began with natural languages superimposing qualitative distinctions on our experience, on our non-dual reality. And on top of that, now we've superimposed these quantitative distinctions. Okay? So, what is science? What is the power of science? Where does it come from, from a mystic's point of view? It doesn't come from discovering new aspects of reality or finally discovering what reality is or anything like that. It comes from creating new imaginary distinctions and superimposing them and carving up the same old non-dual reality into new ways and producing new experiences. Is everybody following what I'm saying? Sort of. Can you say that last part What's that? Can you say that last part again? Yes. The power of science. I mean, one thing we all recognize is how powerful science is. It's just transformed our lives. But it's often presented in school as, well, scientists finally figured out what reality is. They finally figured out, and so they keep discovering new things about reality. But what I'm saying is, from Mystic's point of view, they haven't discovered anything new about reality. Reality is, always was, and always will be. The nature of reality is non-dual. What they've done is figured out a new way to carve up that non-dual reality into very, very precise quantitative distinctions that allows you to then manipulate phenomena in ways that are extremely precise and, and therefore powerful. But it hasn't told us anything about reality in that in the deep fundamental sense. It follows from the very beginning, a name. We create the world out of non-dual reality. We create the world of form by giving it a name. And now we're giving it quantitative names. So, to get back to the original question, natural speech gives us ways of knowing God through making primarily qualitative distinctions. And then 
Science shows us how to know God. This is the manifest God. To know manifest God through superimposing quantitative distinctions on the non-dual reality. But no language, no language, whether qualitative or quantitative, mathematical or natural or whatever, no language can show us how to know that unmanifest God, the unmanifest reality. To know that, we have to transcend all distinctions whatsoever. So our problem then is not that we do science. That's not what devalues God. So our problem is we only see, whether we're using natural language or scientific language, we're only seeing that what we are experiencing through the use of language, through superimposing these grids of distinctions on reality, is we're only seeing one side of the coin of reality. Going back to the original Tao Te Ching, we're seeing the something and the myriad creatures, but we're not seeing the nothing. It doesn't mean the nothing's not there, but it's hidden. We've taken this one side to be the real, and it's veiled us from the other side, which is still there, waiting to be known, but we're missing it. So, science does not, is a way of knowing the manifest God, if we take it to be the reality, however, then it devalues God. It really, I'd rather say, it hides that unmanifest God from us. So let me end by going back to this circle. Close your eyes, please, and visualize that circle again. Now, looking at that circle, notice that you are seeing God in manifest form. That circle is a product of imagination, and that is the manifest form of God. You're knowing God right there in manifest form. Investigating God in the manifest form is what mundane science is all about. And you could continue, and we won't for now, but you could continue by creating in your mind other circles around that circle, in that circle, and then you could study the relationships between all those circles, and you'd start to develop mathematics. And Tom McFarlane wrote a paper about it and shows you how you can get all uh, uh, common mathematics from one distinction. And you can ask him about that later. Now, keep watching that circle, okay? Now, ask... What is the consciousness in which this circle appears? What form does that consciousness have? Investigating that is the key to recognizing the unmanifest, formless God, and that is the business of a sacred science. Did you have a question? Could you read that last section that you said right at the very end? When we're doing the exercise of watching the... When you were just summing up at the end. When you're looking at a circle, you are looking at the manifest God. And if you want to investigate that through creating more quantitative distinctions, like more circles... And you do that by actually, you know, say one circle, two, three, four circles, and then circles within those circles, and then how do they all relate together and so forth. That is the beginning of science. You are doing mundane science, regular science that they do out at the U of O, right? But if you ask the question, what or who is aware of that circle, 
that you're, you're looking at. What is that? Then you're investigating in a way that leads to a sacred science. So I'm making a difference between a sacred science and a regular mundane science, physical science. Yes? You didn't mention quantum mechanics. I didn't mention quantum mechanics. <laughs> Finally, you got a science talk. Yeah. I did not mention quantum <laughs> mechanics. <laughs> but I'll tell you something about quantum mechanics. One little thing. Quantum mechanics also depended on a previous mathematical development. Group theory, I think it was, yeah. So I thought it'd be easier to talk about non-Euclidean geometry. But an interesting thing about quantum mechanics is up until quantum mechanics, and a little bit of relativity, really, it was uh, easy for people to interpret the mathematics in terms of a natural language, at least a technical version of a natural language. So they could talk about well, we're, we're talking about the inverse square law. We're really talking about gravity, something physical, something, you know. But with quantum mechanics, the two depart, start to depart. There are ideas in quantum mechanics, mathematical ideas, for which there is no equivalent in the natural language. And this is what drives people crazy. So we're even seeing now how, how far away, I was talking about the mapping and the development of mathematics and the metrical mapping, that's gone to the point where we were leaving natural language behind. So that's where quantum mechanics fits in, but we talk a lot about quantum mechanics around here, and I didn't want to get us distracted. I wanted to get this overview, this big picture. Uh, let's try somebody else first and come back. Yeah. Um, I, I find it kind of interesting that the more science looks in kind of a materialistic, rational way, the, the stranger things get, particularly in the realm of the very small and the very large. And I was kind of curious about the, the uh, dark energy and dark matter that you know most of the universe is composed of that. Has science kind of encountered the mystery or the unmanifest in, in that, or any ideas on that? No, they just haven't invented a way to, to uh, divide up that part of the world. <laughs> See, this is what I'm saying. I think it's a mistake to start looking at these natural language ideas like dark matter and, and uh, dark matter. yeah are, are ways of working with the mathematical formulas here and they're trying to describe something about what's going to the rest of us. They're not really discovering dark matter, anything called dark matter. And I'll give you a really good example of how this works and why we should be very uh, leery of taking these claims about discovering reality with a grain of salt. It's very useful to talk that way. It's even useful for scientists to talk that way. But, uh, for instance, the history of the word gravity. In the Aristotelian system, before Newton, gravity was, I think it was gravitas in Latin, it was the propensity of heavy objects, like a gong, to move to the center of the universe. Now, that's their natural resting place, see? So all heavy objects, all solid objects like that, they are naturally at the center of the universe because the Earth is the center of the universe. The Earth is a big heavy object right at the center of the universe. And then on top of Earth is water. Water is the next to the four elements, and its natural place is to be on top of Earth. And then air, its natural place is to be on top of water. And then fire, I think is air and fire are reversed, but I think fire then is somehow related to the heavens, and its natural place is above air. And then everything gets stirred up, and then everything's trying to get back to its natural place. So if I hold this gong like this, I'm preventing it from returning to its natural place in the earth. 
if I let go, and I'm not going to because I don't want to crack our floor here, it will go naturally back to the earth. So gravity was this propensity of this God to do that. Well, Newton came along and he said, no, 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 no. Gravity is a force of attraction between, in, inherent in these heavy objects that pulls them together. So now gravity is a kind of a force, and it can be described with a mathematical formula. The inverse square law, it's called. So I can describe how powerful this force is, how far away I am from a big heavy object, like the Earth. So in rocket ships, you know, they need a certain amount of fuel to propel themselves out of the Earth's gravitational field, and you can calculate all that. So now, gravity is no longer some propensity to fall to the center of the Earth, because it's no longer the center of the universe. The Earth is no longer the center of the universe. Now, gravity is a force. You think, oh, you discovered, yeah, you really discovered reality, you see, <laughs> until you come to Einstein. But wait a minute, in Einstein, gravity is not a force at all. Gravity is the curvature of space. This thing falls to the Earth. This thing is like a um, golf ball going around the cup, spinning around, and then falling into the cup. It's just the way the lay of the land, the, the geometric structure of space. So this isn't falling there because Earth's pulling at it with some sort of force. It's just the way the geography space is laid out. So I, I roll a bowling ball down a lawn, it'll follow the geography of the lawn. That's gravity, right? We've got three different ideas. Oh, and by the way, in the Einstein's thing, it gives you beautiful mathematical equations that describe this. But maybe that's not even the end of it. Now there are ideas out there about gravitons, gravitrons. Ton. Ton. Gravitons. It may be some sort of a particle that accounts for gravity. Do you see what's happening here? The mathematics is wonderful. It works at that scale beautifully. But the more we metrically map the world and the more we develop mathematics, the more precise we get. Oh, these natural language ideas turn out to be, quote, wrong. They no longer work. We leave them behind. So what are we discovering? So dark matter, that's a heuristically useful concept to work with. But 100 years from now, is anybody going to be talking about dark matter? Or is that going to mean anything like what it meant the way we use it today? What if uh, some version of string theory is proved to be right, useful, really? In, let's say, 50 years. Uh, we won't be talking about subatomic particles or anything like that. We'll be talking about tears in the fabric of space-time, little rips. All this stuff will seem primitive. So this is why the ground of language keeps shifting, because language took its way from the sea, and it goes back to the sea. Just like Rumi said, all that's really there is the sea. And the sea you can't name. The sea is precisely what you can't name. Or, it's paradoxical, you can name it. All this names the sea. All the something names the nothing. But when it becomes true that we can name the unnameable, then we're dealing in paradox. Anyway, I'm sorry I didn't give you the, the answer you were expecting. And by the way, I know nothing about dark matter. <laughs> yes? Uh, along that vein, not only is that true of 
medical changes, as those of us in the medical field know. But the Supreme Court, in an article today, which I haven't finished reading, the pinnacle of interpreting the Constitution, it's an article about showing how the Supreme Court has changed its mind over the time of different things that they interpreted some other time. Right. And it, it's just an ongoing process of never knowing what the real, real skinny is. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. One of the biggest realizations that you can come to on a spiritual path, short of enlightenment and all that, is that you really don't know what's going on. <laughs> you really don't. The truth of the matter, and by the way, that holds. And it doesn't mean you get enlightened and then you do know what's going on. It means that you are absolutely confirmed in your suspicion that maybe you don't know what's going on. It's absolutely confirmed for you. But you don't know a thing about what's going on. Age helps you get to kind of that point. All these years, I didn't know nothing. I used to say when I was a kid, uh, you know, my parents, when I was like 12 or 13, my parents were so stupid, I couldn't believe it. And then as I got to be 30 or so, they started getting smarter, you know. <laughs> be 40, and gee, they actually kind of knew what they were doing. <laughs> so... Yes. Well, speaking of the spiritual path, it always annoyed me where in line at retreat, you know, at the, in the kitchen, we'd have to wash our hands with that soap, you know. Oh, yeah, there, right. It turns out that the stuff that they make it that kills the germs is worse for you than the soap, and certain states are now outlawing that stuff. <laughs> so, change is good. Yeah. There you go, yes. My favorite bumper sticker is hire a teenager while they still know everything. <laughs> 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 Very good, wow. Another rubber sticker we talked about on the, on the retreat was don't believe what you think. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That's a good one. That's a good slogan for your meditation practice. <laughs> Anybody else about the talk here? Thinking how uh, science is always evolving, changing, and is the sacred world is not like that, though, is it? Has it always been the same and has oh. never gone? Well, again, which side are we talking? See, I said one way to talk about it is two sides of the same coin. So one side, the side, the form side, is always constantly changing. As Rumi said, it takes its wave out of the ocean and it returns. It comes and goes all the time. And the Buddhists are big on describing the impermanence of form, you know, this is one of the major things you go investigate when you start on a Buddhist path, how everything is just constantly impermanent, constantly changing, so forth and so on. So, but that's, that's the side, the manifest side we see. But the formless, the emptiness isn't changing, like form and emptiness. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. How could emptiness change? What would it mean? How could formlessness change? Only forms can change. So, so at the same time, it's not either or, at the same time that everything's changing, the other flip side of that is that what that is a manifestation of is not changing. It's, and not even, I go even farther, it's not only is it not changing like in time, like it's static and standing still, it transcends time altogether. Because time is nothing but imaginary distinctions superimposed on all this change. So what is it that's beyond time? This is why Meister Eckhart talks about the eternal now. 
the now, the now that never changes. This now is still the now, right? Everything's changing in the now, so if you want to look at it that way. But has the now changed? Let me see. We see this is now. Now, watch this. We're going to track now 10 seconds from now, okay? <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Is it still now? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Wow. I'll bet, I'll bet it'll still be now when you go home and have dinner tonight. You check it out. Put that in the back of your mind. Is it now? So the answer to your question is yes and no. On one hand, everything's changing. On the other hand, nothing's changing. And I mean that. Everything is changing and no thing is not changing. Yes. Um, the second part of this question yes. was, can we know God in scientific terms? We can, Did you want to say something about no, that? No, just, I just am oh, wondering, okay. reflecting on your talk. And we can know the manifest God in scientific terms by creating these distinctions and these units of measurement and then superimposing them on the manifestation of our experience. But we cannot know the unmanifest God in scientific terms. We can't know in any kind of terms, period, let alone scientific. So again, you see, once we get at this level, we're at the edge of what speech will allow us to do here. You can tell because we're running into these paradoxes. The answer is yes and no, rather than either or, yes or no. Yeah. So wouldn't it be then fair to say that um, God seeking to know herself, that the process of us doing science is that also yes yes exactly it is indeed say that again Joel could say it better the process of doing science is God's getting to know God the process of writing a poem is God's getting to know God the process of dancing the process of music in the moment is God's getting to know God different kinds of distinctions not one is right or wrong, and not one is more valuable than the other. You know, in our world, think, well, you know, science is really what's important. And, you know, poetry's nice, and music's nice. And they probably have some value in, in holding the culture together or something like that. You know, but don't we, I mean, as a culture, we, we kind of tend to devalue them, not take them seriously. But it's just as much, and different ways of knowing. There are ways that you can know God through, through music that you can't know through science. There are ways that you can know God through both music and science when you study the, the science of music, which is kind of connected, you know. As long as we don't reify the distinctions science makes and take them to be the only reality and let that hide or ignore the other side of the reality, which is transcends distinctions, and then we've focused in on this world of distinction, whether it's scientific distinctions, quantitative distinctions, or qualitative distinctions, or poetry, or anything. We focused in on that, but we've ignored the flip side. And then, it's not that it devalues God, but it becomes a veil, I'd put it that way. But Joel, doesn't the flip side, the two sides of the coin, so to speak, that, is, that must be the, the basis of duality, right? People are looking at one side, and they're... Like, yes, yes, you're reifying that distinction, even. The very first one, something and nothing. Well, 
It's got to be either something or nothing, right? Well, but wrong. <laughs> From the mystic's point of view, it doesn't have to be either something or nothing. That's a fun way to talk about it. It's like drawing a, um, a boundary for a game of, let's say, soccer. The kids come to my park outside my kitchen window and they play soccer, you know, and they, they set up those little uh, orange cones to create a boundary. And so now we have this boundary, and then we can tell you're either in the boundary or you're out of the bounds. And the adults, these little kids, you know, they run kicking the ball, and the adults <laughs> sit on the side, they go, no, oh, they blow the whistle, you're out of bounds. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Get back in there. Don't give me any lip, Johnny. Hank, you'll be saying this soon. <laughs> so it's fun. There's nothing wrong with doing that, drawing this imaginary boundary. And then we can play a game based on that. And it's great. Everybody has a great time. They get out all their aggression and all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, they take the cones and they go away and the boundary's gone. (laughs) And heaven help them if they start thinking these boundaries are really real and really important and I can't let any coach, you know, call me out of bounds. And the next thing you know, you have a, a fight. That's what happens when we reify boundaries. Okay, no other questions? Well, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. Until we see you again, peace to you all.